The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. So I'm Robert. Can you introduce me? <laughs> I'm good. How are you guys? So I'm going to read the word. I'm going to read it in English and in Dutch. I'm going to read from... Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 31, so please all, all rise. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree of those of whose... Uh, sorry. Uh, of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Now it's Dutch. Toen zei God, laat ons mensen maken die op ons lijken en kunnen heersen over alle dieren op aarde, in de zeeën en in de lucht. God schiep daarop de mens als zijn evenbeeld. Als man en vrouw schiep hij hen. God zegende hen en zei, vermenigvuldig je, bevolk de aarde en onderwerp haar. Heers over de vissen, de vogels en alle dieren. Kijk om je heen. Overal op aarde staan zaaddragende planten en vruchtbomen. Die ik tot jullie voedsel geef. Al het gras en de planten heb ik als voedsel aan de dieren en de vogels gegeven. Toen overzag God alles wat hij gemaakt had. En het was heel goed. Het werkt avond en het werkt morgen. De zesde dag. This is the word of the God. Morning fam, how are you guys? I'm a little injured this morning, so if you'll forgive me, I'm trying to do this from a stool behind the table. Oh, man, one of those weeks. How are you guys? You guys okay? Yeah. Great. My name is Jared. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I didn't expect that. My, uh, I, you know, I hurt, hurt myself uh, playing softball. It's the, sometimes you just got to sacrifice for that church league, you know? Just got to make sure that that... That happens. So um, the worst part is like I wasn't even playing well. That's the that's like could have done it doing something cool, but it, it definitely wasn't. So, well, I'm so glad to uh, to be with you guys this morning. It's such an honor and a privilege to serve alongside of you. I'm excited for what God is doing in this city, and uh, I, I tell you what, there is um, it's not a day goes by that I don't hear a cool story or something that God is doing. There is so many great conversations that I get to have throughout the week, and uh, and it's neat to hear people say, "Oh." 
you're a pastor of that church. I've heard of that church because of the relationship that you guys have in this community, and it's, uh, it's being noticed. People are noticing what you're doing, and so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you. You know, Bob was just talking about the tithing portion. Some of you are so generous, and your generosity is allowing God's gospel to continue to move forward every single day, and so thank you for the ways that you sacrifice. I know it's not, hard. I know it's not easy. Uh, it's hard for my, me and my family to give as well, just because it's always, there's always something that comes up. There's always some unforeseen medical expense that pops up, right? There's always something, but God has always been faithful to us. And so I want to thank you again for your generosity because God is continuing to be faithful in you and through you for this church. Well, this church is, uh, is a family, and that means that we've got some great things about family. We've got some tough things about family. There's always a crazy uncle here. You know, that's, uh, that's just part of life. Uh, that's always, it's always a part of learning to be uh, followers of Jesus. And, and God is redeeming us each and every day, which is really cool. Uh, but we're learning how to love Jesus and people because I, I think one of our missions here is to learn how to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. That doesn't come naturally. It's something that we have to learn how to do. And so uh, learning to love God isn't such a big deal because, well, it's just something we kind of feel like we're supposed to do. And so we come to church, we learn about them, we read our Bible, we pray, we spend time with them. Those are ways we learn. But it's people that are hard. Right? It's people that can become really difficult to love because loving somebody means to extend the same rights, the same privilege, the same grace, the same believing that the intentions are good that you would give yourself to somebody else. And that's where this gets really hard because it's really easy to believe somebody's intentions are bad. It's really easy to not give somebody the grace that you would give yourself. And so we have to learn to love our neighbors as we love ourselves in those ways. And so we're going to uh, continue to do that together. We're going to continue to learn about that. But uh, before we do, let's talk about our Minute to Mingle question for the day. And that was, what is your favorite saying in a language other than English? What do you guys have? Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. All right. All right. That's the language of Disney. I like it. That's good. What else? Te amo. Te amo. All right. It's a good saying. I like that. Okay. What does that mean? Don't even. <laughs> Nancy, I love that. Thank you. That's that is fantastic. Uh, Ohana, yeah. Ohana's a great. Konnichiwa, yeah. Okay. That's your favorite. Which one? Carpe diem. Little Latin. Dead language. Not a dead saying. That's fantastic. I like that. What else? Genese qua. Got a certain genese qua. All right. Awesome. Well. Today, we're going to come back to that in just a second. You're like, why on earth are we talking about that? Uh, we're going to come back to that today, but um, I want to let you know we're, we're entering a new series called Centered today, and um, this, at the beginning of the summer, the elders went away. We prayed and fasted for, for a period of time before we went on a retreat. We went on a retreat, and we were asking the Lord, hey, can you please help us to understand where it is you want this body of believers to go? We're, we're called together. We're called on a mission. We know the mission is to spread the gospel, but how do you want us to do that? What does that look like, and, uh, and what do you want us to focus on in this year in particular? And the theme that we returned with was this thing called Centered, and it's a year focused on relationships with God and people. The idea being that we're coming back to some of those foundational things that allow us to truly know and understand who God is, uh, but in light of that, who are we and what are we called to do? And so really those things that allow us to love God and people, they really come from some foundational ideas and truths. And so we wanted to go back to some of those things 
over the course of this year and figure out how we're supposed to live out our calling in light of who God is and what he's called us to do. And so every sermon uh, this year will have that theme running through it. Now, Centered is, a, is kind of the core of our sermon series for the year. We go September to August. And so it's actually broken into three parts. We're going to start it. We'll stop it. We'll go into some other things, and we'll come back to it twice more throughout this year. We started this with the Job series, and we really begin to look at the character and nature of God. Who is God? Especially in light of, of difficult things. We've been through difficult seasons, and many of us are going through suffering. And so how do we look at who God is in light of those type of things? That's a nature and character of God. That's a foundational truth of who God is. And so we're excited about uh, learning how to grow and mature in our love for Jesus and people. Good? All right, so we're going to kick this off today. Let's pray, and we'll get into our message. Father, thank you for the opportunity to know you and love you. We thank you that Sunday mornings are a chance for us to sit and kind of learn together, but we thank you that it doesn't stop here, that you have put us in the places we are in our life on purpose to stretch us and grow us and challenge us, to to bring up the things in us that need to change, the things that need to be reinforced, that you continue to give us opportunities to know you and love you, to model you and show who you are to the people around us. Lord, those are things that we, we need help with. And so would you continue to speak in ways that we can hear to help, uh, to, to help us understand your word, to speak to us in prayer, to help us to listen to you as we pray. And I pray that in these things, Father, you would be present in our lives in ways we haven't experienced before. And so we love you. We thank you for this time in the name of Jesus. Amen. The gospel literally means good news. And, uh, and there's a problem in that sometimes we think the gospel is just that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again. And we're like, well, that's good news. That's great. But, but the question that I get here so often, uh, we are in a post-Christian or even a pre-Christian society now. What does that mean? It means that, that, uh, that people didn't grow up. Some of you come from the Midwest. You come from the Bible Belt. You come from these places where you, you say a story. You say a name like Jonah. And people are like, oh, yeah, cool. I know what you're talking about. But many of the people that we run into in Los Angeles do not have that foundational basis of what you're talking about when you talk about the Bible. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had here with people, and, and, and they'll tell me, I, I've literally never met a Christian before. When, when I first moved to Southern California, I remember uh, I was stationed at Camp Pendleton, and it, it was months, months before I found one other Christian. Couldn't find him. And so those of you who have grown up in church, I think there's this, this idea or this understanding of everybody knows what we're talking about, and that's not the case. And here's the interesting thing. In a pre-Christian environment, it's, it's not that people are even uh, against Jesus. Some of you are still thinking we need to argue to, to, to why Jesus is good. The problem isn't that. The problem is people are not saying whether Jesus exists or Jesus didn't exist. The problem is people are saying, why does he matter? If you talk to your friends right now, many of them will say, that's great, but that's good for you. But, but I, I just don't see your life being any different than mine. I don't see Christians' lives any better. The same divorce rates, the same angry people. In fact, it seems like you have more rules than me. And so sometimes it seems like you're kind of worse off than me. And so the gospel is more than just Jesus came and died and rose again. But the gospel is that Jesus is continuing to transform who we are that we have been saved, but there's this portion where we are being saved. The big Christianese word for that is sanctification. 
It's this idea that, that the Bible says day by day he's renewing our minds, that the more that we are apprenticing Jesus, that we're learning at the feet of a master, the more that he begins to change, renew, and restore us. The things inside of us, the things that we don't even know need to be restored yet, God is restoring each and every day. And so that's the gospel too, that we are being saved, but, but uh, that we have been saved and we are being saved, but also that someday he's going to restore everything to the way that he wants it to be. That he will bring heaven down to earth. You know, we don't go to heaven. That's a common uh, misnomer. That, that God is going to bring heaven to earth and he's going to merge the spiritual and the, and the physical once again, the way that it was originally. And so there's just going to be this beautiful restoration of spiritual and physical together the way that they were first intended. And this is what we're looking forward to, that God brings these things back together into the way that he, went, that he designed them to be. And so we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That is the gospel. That's why we have hope. That's why it's not just some 2,000-year-old thing that we talk about once before, but why it still matters each and every day for us. Make sense? Yes. But here's the thing. If I ask you what's the gospel, before a couple seconds ago, we would have probably more answers than there are people in this room. And so it helps us to, to understand having some common language about what the gospel is and having some common ways to express it actually helps us to be on the same page so that we can communicate what the gospel actually is. What is the gospel? That God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. That's the gospel. But if we talk about this in different ways, it's like communicating in completely different languages. And because all of us are learning these different languages at different paces and in different ways, we don't always communicate the same way at the same time. And that's okay. God has created room for us to learn and grow. We're not all expected to have everything figured out at the same place and the same time. We're actually supposed to help each other, right? This is a part of what we call another Christianese word, discipleship. Discipleship just means we help each other learn and grow into who God is and what he's called us to do. It's a day-by-day -day thing. We're all supposed to help each other. That's what it means to be a partner or a member of the church, that you've committed to the rest of the church saying, I will help the people around me, and I will allow the people around me to help me grow into the person God wants me to be. Now, that's great when you're just like, cool, I'm just going to tell somebody what to do. But that's not what it is, right? It's opening our lives up, being transparent. It's being broken enough to recognize the places in our life that don't look like Jesus and opening up so people can speak into those places. That's scary. But that's discipleship. And so God has called us to do this. And so this, this helps. And so in the same way, we need to kind of understand some of those key phrases. But, but, but look, here's the deal. You know, being able to say, Uno más, por favor, does not mean that I speak Spanish. Right? So we have, to, we have to continue to learn and grow so we can say some Christianese words. It doesn't mean that we're communicating the gospel effectively. And so the best way to do that is to create some of these foundational ideas to help us understand who God is, what is his story and our story, and why those stories matter. Now, today is going to be a little bit crazy. You guys already know I talk fast, but I've got to teach the entire Bible in one message. We're going to literally go Genesis to Revelation. So uh, I know there's 66 books. I'm not going to hit every book, but I promise this will not take more than three to four hours, okay? So we're going to be good. We won't even go over that. Yeah. Story's like, I'm in for four hours. I got this. That's great. Okay. I'm going to grab some key verses uh, from the Bible to help us see that the story is connected. 
And so, so this is, this is what's, what's incredible about this, that we're actually going to see how the story of God goes from Genesis to Revelation and how it actually weaves perfectly through together. And it's one love story. And there's actually three gardens that tie this all together. You're going to see the garden in the beginning, um, the, the, the Garden of Eden. You're going to see the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus kneels and prays. And you're going to see the garden in Revelation. And, 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 and that really represents these, these three places that God is moving us from and to. And so this is what we're going to do today. And so um, we, we read from Genesis this morning to kind of just give you this picture of God created this. And, and there's this beautiful picture of, of how he designed us to be. And if you're going, well, what, is that, what does that scripture have to do with the rest of this? It's because that's, again, who we are, who we were, who God is making us to be, and who we will be once again. Amen? Again, that's just the Christian Christianese word for I agree. So let's start. Uh, we, uh, I apologize for this. We had some, um, some notes for you this morning, and our copier broke this morning. And so unfortunately, I don't have the breakdown. If you do want them, though, if you will email, who should we email? Tracy at storycitychurch.com. Thank you, Tracy. Tracy at storycitychurch.com. She can send that out to you this week if you want to look through how we went through this, because we're going to be going really fast And I know it can be overwhelming. So Genesis chapter one, verse one says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the story begins with God because a story is about God. The the story is about God. We have taken the Bible and we've said that it's somehow supposed to be, uh, it's, it's, it's like it's about us. And there is nothing that can be further from the truth. The the Bible is a story of God, his love for us, the way that we actually rebelled against God, the way that God loved us enough to create an avenue uh, back to him, and the way that he did that and how he will continue to do that. So God is the hero of the story. The Bible is not about us. God existed eternally in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in three persons, nothing else existed. And then God smoked, God smoked, God, well, he did. It was like, told you. I'm trying to go fast and, you know, it's not going to work that way. Uh, he spoke and everything came into being. Genesis 1, 26 to 31 says this, then God said, let us, there's our Trinity, make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, the whole earth, and his creatures to crawl on the earth. So God created a man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That uh, fill the earth is actually create culture. Create culture. Create godly culture. Create the culture that I have designed you to create. Uh, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant in the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls in the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning, the sixth day. Robert, that sounded amazing in Dutch and uh, I've never seen anybody make Dutch sound so less angry than you did. That was really, (laughs) really, really good. Okay, so here's our story so far. God created a kingdom. He is creator king over that kingdom. He created a man and woman in his image after his likeness. 
The invisible God created humans to be a visible display, a picture of what he is like. And even though he is king, God, and creator, he made humans as his representatives to this kingdom and made them responsible for leading it. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 17 says this, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Real quick, I want to go something, a side note here. As you read the Bible and you get to places like Exodus and, uh, and you're going, what on earth are all these weird measurements, the temple and all this stuff? And it gets into it. Here's the thing. It always evokes imagery of the garden. And there's this sense of this desire to get back to the garden. And so all of these things point to, in the temples, they have this beautiful imagery of garden-like things, things like pomegranates and figs. It's to point us back to what we lost and what we believe God is bringing us into in the future. So that's why you see those things there. Okay, verse 10. The river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, and there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and Onks are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God puts his people in an amazing garden where everything works in perfect harmony the way that God had intended. So this is our first garden, Genesis 3, 4 to 13. Now, this is, we're, we're skipping ahead. This is Satan talking to Adam and Eve and saying, hey, uh, God told you not to touch a tree, but here's my statement. He says, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? I love when God asks us questions he already knows the answers to. And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman did it. <laughs> sin is still sin thousands of years later. That's right. <laughs> For those of you who didn't hear, she said they're still doing that. That's... Uh, all right. The man replied, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And in verse 24, we see the result is they cannot stay in this garden. Genesis 3, 24. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way, of the way to the tree of life. 
So God tasked humans to trust and obey him to be representations of him. Adam and Eve rejected that call, and in doing so, they became sinful and began to die spiritually, as would any of their offspring for all of eternity. They now are dying spiritually. Anything that's born after them, any of their children are born after them, are born spiritually dead. That includes us. And they're made to leave the garden, and the perfect relationship that existed before their sin is broken. And so here's the deal. Not only did the relationship between God and humans break, But the relationship between humans broke. That's why there's all of a sudden this blame, all this stuff going on. But also, the relationship between humanity and creation was broken. All you have to do is look around and see we have messed that up as well. And so all of these relationships are broken. That's why we say in the gospel that he is going to rescue and renew all of creation. It doesn't just mean God and humans. It means human and humans and humans and the created world around us. And so that's the part that God is going to restore. And God has a plan and promises to rescue us. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put hostility, he's talking to Satan, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is a reference to Jesus. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. We call this in Christianese the Proto-Evangelion, the first telling of the gospel. From the very beginning, we've sinned, but God already had a plan in place for rescue and redemption for all of us. And so in the midst of cursing humanity and Satan for his role in Adam and Eve's treasonous act, God actually gives hope to Adam and Eve uh, and by extension, the rest of humanity. God would not leave us without hope. This is the incredible thing about God, that even in the midst of saying, hey, this is what's going to happen because of your sin, he actually offers us hope of rescue and renewal right there. Now, in the flood, God chose to wipe out evil, the, certain, the, surf, the serpent's offspring. Okay, Satan's offspring is evil and death that comes from it. And so God decides to wipe that all out and start over. But it's not long before Eve's offspring's defect to the serpent's side once again. And the battle rages throughout the pages of the Bible. It's like no matter what God does, humanity is bent on defying and rebelling against him. And yet... Even while this conflict is raging on, God is continuing to work to fulfill his promise. This is incredible. We keep rebelling and and, and acting treasonous against God. We keep defying him and saying, God, you don't know better. We know better. And we keep rebelling against you. And yet God continues to be faithful to the promise he made long ago. That's startling. To this end, he called one man Abram, who he later names Abraham, to be the person through whom he would bring his saving blessings to the entire world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a reference again to Jesus. God makes a covenant, a promise. Now, this promise is different than promises that maybe we've heard our fathers make, but this covenant is something where it's a promise that can't be broken. It's it's an unbreakable curse, right? Unbreakable promise, right? Somebody laughed. Okay, you got it. That's all right. Some of you are like, Harry Potter, you can't talk about that in church. Makes an unbreakable promise where the burden is entirely on God to fulfill that promise. That's the best part about it. That it's not a promise that relies on us responding to God appropriately. It's literally a promise that says, I'm going to do this, and I know you're going to screw your side up, but I'm going to be faithful 
anyway. That's what this covenant promises, that God is not going to back away from this. And so he promises that he would make Abraham's family into a great nation that would become a blessing to the entire world. So here is the story so far. God created a kingdom. He's the king, but he made humans to be the representation of him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve and the rest of us have rejected that call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent, Satan, through the offspring of the woman, who now is also going to be the offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. That is once again prophesying Jesus is coming. Jesus is in the, the family of Judah. When Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was dying, he blessed each of his sons in different ways. But when he came to Judah, he gave a royal blessing. Adam and Eve were created to help manage God's kingdom and rule it on his behalf. And so in a way, they were created to be kings and queens. And so God makes this royal promise that the offspring of Eve and Abraham and eventually Judah would not only be the rescuer, but he would restore humanity to their place in the garden as God intended, and that he would be the king of all nations, not just the nation of Israel. And so this is where we begin to see that God's plan is not just for Abraham's offspring, but it includes all of humanity. Now we fast forward and the people of Israel are in Egypt. They are enslaved there. They cry out to God and God is going to lead them through Moses out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 27. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel on two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. Now, no, none of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over. That's where Passover comes from. He will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, you are to reply it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshiped. The battle of the offspring of Eve and the serpent is still raging with the serpent doing everything he can to destroy the people of Israel. The people of Israel uh, end up in slavery to the Egyptians. It looks bleak, but God promises he will rescue them. In the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Now this is all symbolic, right? The death of the firstborn child comes here. Here's where this is interesting. That uh, the firstborn of every uh, uh, Israelite was supposed to be given to the Lord. You could redeem them back, but the idea was the first bit of everything we have that's good is always supposed to be God's. And so the firstborn child, it's, it's common to be known that the firstborn child is given to God himself. And so God is demanding the firstborn, but he is allowing the firstborn to be redeemed back in Israel by the passing over of them by the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb that dies 
in the place. And so you have this incredible thing where the Israelites are spared. You have the firstborn son dying. You have the firstborn of the Israelites not touched. And it's all going to point forward to Jesus. That They are being rescued from their slavery. They are being moved into freedom to follow, follow God once again. And so this is, again, all about the symbolism of what's going to happen later. Because the lambs are sacrificed, the people did not have to die, and the firstborn sons of Abraham's family were safe. Moses is given the law to give to the people, which required animals to die in our place for sin. This shows us the idea or the principle of substitution, that something could die in our place in order to help rescue us. It's pointing us forward to this idea that something else could take the penalty of death instead of us. It's God using this to show us what Jesus would eventually do, that we would be bought out of slavery to sin, from sin and death, and Jesus would die as a sacrificial lamb in our place. Okay, so once again, here's the story so far. God created a kingdom. He's king. He made humans to be physical representations of him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman, who is also the offspring of Abraham, through Abraham's family and specifically Judah's royal offspring, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the law of Moses revealed more clearly our need for a substitute. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 16 says this, When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, the king, this is King David, said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that's in your mind. The Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says, are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. And listen, here comes the prophecy part. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done every day since I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you and your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is again referring to Jesus. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When, uh, now, this is not talking about Jesus. This portion here is talking about Solomon. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my fearful love will leave, never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. So not only would God establish the kingdom of David's son, Solomon, but this son would also fulfill David's ambition of building a house for God. As he built his temple, the King David's son would be the one who would bring the blessing of God's presence to his people in a lasting way. And so this prophecy is talking about both Solomon in the short term and Jesus in the long term. And so again, this directly refers to King Solomon who did build the temple, but later... Uh, one of David's offspring is so wicked that God ended this line of kings. And so how is God going to fulfill this promise when he's actually removed David's uh, physical lineage from the line of kings? 
And so we go, how is this going to happen? Until the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus' lineage is from, the David's, uh, from David's royal line. And so Jesus is in the line of the kings of David, and this is why that lineage happens in Matthew. And so while the promise included Solomon, it ultimately pointed to Jesus. And so Jesus is in the line of David. This brings back the presence of God to all nations. But here's the thing. The presence of God wouldn't look like a typical king when he came. Instead, he would be that sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant. This was prophesied some 900 years before Jesus' birth. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, verses 5 to 7, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Listen to this. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. We see this fulfilled in Jesus in the last days. And so we see after Egypt the need for the Passover lamb and the sacrifices required by the law that God gave to Moses. God sent prophets to the people to help them obey, but they wouldn't listen. He sent priests to the people, but they still wouldn't obey. The priests failed to be holy. In fact, they so often led the nation of Israel astray. He sent king to the people, but the kings and the people turned their back on God and continually led the people away from him. And so something had to give. And so God predicts that the rescuer would be the perfect prophet. He would be the perfect priest and the perfect king. And that perfect prophet, priest, and king would be sacrificed in our place. And so Ezekiel chapter 36, 22 to 30 says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, is it, not for your, it, uh, it is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. And I will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful and I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the land plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. Did you notice the Garden of Eden language in God's promise? It continues to go back to this. And so God reminds Israel that even though they have not been faithful to him, that he is continuing his covenant, his promise with us. It says no matter how impossible it looks, he can bring back rescue and redemption and renewal to us. He uses the images of grain and fruit as a picture of the garden that he's promising to restore them to. And so once again, here is the story so far. God created the kingdom. He's king. He created Adam and Eve to be representations of him in that kingdom. They rejected that call, which led to sin and death. God promised to defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman, who's also the offspring of Abraham. 
Through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal offspring, David, the covenant blessings would continue to come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the law of Moses revealed more clearly our need for a substitute and that suffering servant would come. Through the servant and the work of the Spirit, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to his people. And finally, the rescuer, the suffering servant, appears. This is where we have the transition from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament to the New Covenant and the New Testament. Make sense? Why we call it Old Covenant, New, to- New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, right? In case no one ever explains it. That's why the Bible is broken to those parts. And so finally, the suffering servant shows up and we see in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, it's John the Baptist, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the news, the good news of God, the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying it's finally here. The promised rescuer, the promised redeemer, the promise of the covenant that God made so long ago, the time has finally come. This is it. And so Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as such is the only the only sacrifice that can satisfy the conditions of rescue and establish the new and better kingdom and fulfill the covenant promise of God. But Jesus had to surrender in the garden to open the way for us to be redeemed. And so now we get to our second garden. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 36 says this. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for, me, for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. In doing so, you have a second Adam in the garden, but this Adam is faithful. This Adam doesn't rebel against God. This Adam carries out the will of God and is obedient even to the point of death. Jesus fulfills his mission as a suffering servant rescuer on the cross. John 19, 29 to 30 says, uh, as he's hanging on the cross, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, if you remember, how do they put the blood on the doorposts in the Passover? With a hyssop branch. This is why this is, again, back to this symbolism, back to what God is showing us he is doing. They use the hyssop branch to give Jesus the sponge to his mouth. And so Jesus, just like the hyssop branch, the hyssop branch uh, becomes purifying. Jesus, just like that hyssop branch and the blood during the Passover in Egypt becomes a Passover lamb. Romans chapter one, Paul says in verses three to four, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, this is why that matters, according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And so he's saying Jesus was physically in the line of David, and so he meets that satisfaction. But Paul is saying he was also always God. He's saying he meets both requirements. And so once again, here is his story so far. 
God created a kingdom. He's the king, but he made humans to be the physical representation of him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected the call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the offspring of the woman, who is also the offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal offspring, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly our need for a substitute and a suffering servant. Through the servant and the work of the Spirit, God would establish a new covenant to give life everlasting to his people in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is the one whom all these promises find fulfillment, first in his sacrificial death for sin and then in his victorious resurrection and reign as king. We're about to see here shortly the third garden. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 4 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And this is where we get to that third garden. As the worship team returns to the stage, I want you to read this with me, Revelation 22, 1-5. to Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's street. Now listen to this. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever. Family, our hope is in our redemption from God. Our hope is that we have been saved, we are being saved, and someday everything will be Redeemed As it was in the beginning, God's people will always be dependent on him for life. But we've seen that he can always be trusted and give us what we need, that he has a plan and a purpose and a hope for us, that his ways are better than our ways, and we will have the joy forever of trusting him and receiving from him. That's what we are made for, to live in and enjoy the life-giving presence of the one true God. The battle's been won. This is our hope. The battle's already been won. And the Bible says God is only waiting to set everything right because he wants to give time for people to come back to him. This is the story of the Bible. This is the overarching story of the Bible. This is the gospel that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation to the person and work of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to know you better. Thank you that we get to see this plan unfold that we, Lord, like, unlike so many people in the past creation who didn't get to see the answer, who didn't get to see the hope, unlike so many of them, we didn't get to see, Lord, they didn't get to see what you were going to do. We thank you that you have 
shown us your redemption and restoration that we can trust you and rely on you. We love you that you are our hope. Continue to restore and renew us day by day. In the name of Jesus, amen.